Hey, Forest City Churches. My name's Zach Snyder, and I'm the video director at Lifehouse Church. During the Forest City series, we talk about a lot of tough topics that impact our area. And one of those topics is the idea of broken homes that impacts families, youth, and children in our region. I've brought on one of my good friends, Alex Lyons, who's an alumnus of and an advocate for a lot of people in these situations. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you mind sharing with us a little bit about your story and your experience? Yeah, so uh, I, growing up, I never knew my dad, and I lived with my mom until I was eight. Uh, my mom had a lot of abusive boyfriends, of one who thrust me into foster care. I was in my first foster home for a short amount of time where I met a 65-year-old Presbyterian choir director. And when I think of maternal love to this day, 30 years later, I think of that woman. I was not with her, but a short amount of time, but I think of her having a tremendous impact. But unfortunately, because of tension between my biological mom and that foster mom, I was then put in care of another family, uh, a 24 and 26 year old couple who are newly married. And so that did not end well either. And uh, by then I was in uh, almost in junior high. For the remainder of uh, my time, I spent in a couple different group homes, one of which was a Lutheran group home. When my uh, grandmother died, uh, my mom stopped visiting me and I was kind of truly at a lone portion in my life that was kind of just kind of the lowest of the low, if you will. Um, you're here where your mom is, you know, your only family member that you know, and all of a sudden she's not visiting you anymore and you feel abandoned. You feel that you're, uh, nobody really cares, who cares about anything really. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Pastor Allen, we're in a series for, called For Our City. And today's topic is to show mercy, and we're really directing it toward broken homes, broken families, adoption, foster care, etc., etc. I want to start with a question. Do we see people as problems? Do you see kids without, from broken homes as problems? Do you see their parents as problems? Do you see the drug addict as problems? Uh, do we see people as problems? Another question you can ask yourself is, do people see you as a problem? There's brokenness all around us. Um, and the question is, could the solution be, or possibly be, you and me? And I believe that's the God, message God has for us. Now, we've been focusing around uh, a story or sermon in the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew records it for us. Tell you a little bit about Matthew. Matthew was a Jew living in Jesus' day, but his profession was tax collector. And you need to understand that Israel was uh, occupied by the Roman Empire, and so they would hire tax collectors to take money from their fellow Jews and give it to the Romans so the Romans could occupy the country and rape and pillage and do whatever they wanted. Uh, so consequently, they were traitors. They were absolutely hated by the other Jews. And they weren't allowed in the synagogue. They couldn't practice their religion. And so they were outcasts. In that situation, Jesus comes along and accepts Matthew. He invites him to come and follow him. Be one of his disciples. Again, no Jewish 
religious leader would have anything to do with Matthew. But Matthew saw something different in Jesus. Jesus saw what we want to call the invisible people. Uh, and he, those of us that are church people, we, there are invi, invi, invisible people also to us. So before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, uh, Matthew records what's going on in, in, in Galilee with Jesus. This is in chapter 4. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, his home area, teaching in the synagogues, announcing good news about the kingdom. He was talking about a spiritual kingdom. People were hoping he was talking about a physical kingdom. They wanted to get rid of the Romans, natural, and (laughs) that anybody would have wanted that. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. So he was dealing with the untouchables, the people that weren't acceptable in society. They weren't, they were ostracized. And Jesus was dealing with them. News about him spread as far as Syria, which has been a long ways in their day. And people soon began to bring to him all who were sick. You can imagine. If you're sick, they don't have hospital care like we have today. There really was much hope. And so you find about somebody that's healing sickness. So the people flock to him. And whenever there was sickness, whatever their sicknesses or diseases, and if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. It means he wasn't a respecter of persons. It didn't matter what their problem was, where they came from, he was going to, to try and find healing, to bring hope to the hopeless, uh, to help heal the broken. So the question is why? Why did Jesus do it? And if you're a Jesus follower, if you're not, we're glad we're watching. But if you're a Jesus follower, why? Because we're supposed to follow Jesus, do what Jesus did. Well, later on, Matthew records it this way. When he, meaning Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion. Some translation says he was moved with compassion on them because they were confused and helpless and he uses a great analogy, like sheep without a shepherd. So they were moved. So there was some response that came from Jesus. And that word compassion literally means gut-wrenching. There was something deep inside that compelled Jesus to help these folks. Um, love and kindness, we're going to find it described later. Um, and so the question is, to the broken people in our culture, in our society. Hopefully you pray for them. Often, I believe, God answers that prayer with you, with me. Now, this image of sheep without a shepherd, we don't have, I've never had sheep. (laughs) But the purpose, I understand, for a shepherd is to take care of the sheep, protect the sheep. So sheep without a shepherd are not protected. They're in danger. And so Jesus sees people that are broken is in danger. And we see a, a, a rise in uh, addictions. We see a rise in, in, in suicides and abuse uh, because of broken people. So we're looking at Sermon on the Mount. We're starting at the beginning where Jesus lists some things we call the Beatitudes. And we're going to look at one today. It's actually in verse... Chapter 5, verse 7, it says this. 
God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And we've been looking at the Amplified Version. It gives us a little more explanation of what those words mean, especially the word blessed. So here's what it literally means, to be happy, not giggly all the time, but it'll explain. To be envied. Now, if you are blessed and would describe what it means, people are probably going to envy you. Spiritually prosperous, not necessarily physically, but spiritually prosperous. What does that mean? Well, a life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation. Spiritually prosperous. Life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation. Regardless of our outward conditions. That's why we might always have a smile on our face. Things may be difficult. So, people like that are blessed. They are merciful, for they will obtain mercy. So, there's kind of like, you get what you, re- you receive, but you give. If you and I are kind, we usually receive kindness back, not all the time. <clears throat> if you're mean to people, you usually receive meanness back. He's saying, you be merciful to people, you will receive mercy. The root word for mercy is actually the word that's used for womb. Again, this is from deep down inside us that that it comes from. I use a simple definition for mercy. It's this, not getting what we deserve. And there's lots of illustrations. You're speeding down the highway, a policeman pulls you over, and you're dreading the fact he's going to give you a ticket. And for whatever reason, especially if you're a woman, uh, they... Pretty woman, anyway. Uh, I don't know. I'm not, my, I, my wife doesn't get tickets, but anyway, that's all I know. Uh, and she does speed. Oh, she's watching this, but anyway. Uh, uh, you don't give they're, they're merciful. He doesn't give you a ticket. Or the judge doesn't you know, give you a fine when you go to court. You don't get what you deserve. You got some young people here, children in here. Uh, your parents say, if you do this, this is going to happen. Well, you break the rule, but they don't punish you, take that away from you, or whatever it might be. They showed you mercy. So I think we all understand the concept. It's not getting what you deserve. Not getting something bad that you deserve. Maybe that's better. So let's focus on mercy a little bit. We need to be moved by mercy. Like Jesus was moved by compassion. <clears throat> be moved by mercy. So I, I want to ask myself, what hinders me, what ha- hinders us from being merciful? Seems like a good thing to be. <laughs> uh, came up with a couple of reasons. One, life beats us up, doesn't it? Life is tough. Sometimes we're just trying to keep our head above water. Now, I, don't, I don't have the energy, I don't have the time, I don't have the resources to be merciful to other people. I'm just barely hanging on. Another reason I thought of, it's kind of strange, but... We all love to receive mercy, right? I, I don't want to get the speeding ticket. I don't want to pay for the ticket. But when it comes to other people, if I'm sitting in court and the judge lets that guy off, I'm thinking, that's not fair. He deserves to pay that fine. So it's something in us that wants it for ourselves, but we don't want it for other people. We want justice for them. We want fairness for them. And ultimately, bottom line, it's impossible for you and I to be truly merciful because we are all sinners, meaning we are all self-centered and selfish. And to be merciful is to be giving. And so I want to talk, uh, read a couple of verses where Paul just explains how our relationship with God is dependent upon His mercy. 
This is in Titus chapter 3. But when God our Savior revealed His kindness and love, there's, there's two terms. How did He do that? By sending Jesus. He saved us or provided salvation, called a Savior. Not because of the righteous things we have done. So it has nothing to do with how many good things you do. Now you've done lots of good things. That has no effect on your broken relationship with God. But what does? Well, because of His mercy. We don't deserve to be forgiven by God. We don't deserve to have a relationship with God. But because of His kindness and love, He provided through mercy that we can He washed away our sins. Uh, We have baptism. We just had baptismal service recently. That's symbolic of our sins being washed away when we have faith in Jesus. And he gives us a new birth, described as being born again. You get a new start. You got a new life. New life through the Holy Spirit. Uh, The praise team sings a song I really like. And one line in it is, I like all their songs, (laughs) okay? Uh, But one song I like that has a line in it, mercy triumphs over judgment. The judgment for all of us is what? Condemnation, separation from God, eternity uh, separated from God. But mercy, if we receive God's mercy, triumphs over that. And we are not judged. Jesus was judged on our behalf. He goes on. He, Jesus, or God, generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, because of His grace. Now, I have a parallel definition for grace. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. All right, this is on the negative side, this is on the positive side. So do we deserve for God to, to provide uh, His Holy Spirit to empower us? Do we provide purpose and meaning for life? To provide eternity with Him in heaven? No, 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 we don't deserve it. That's all grace. So He made us right in His sight by grace, and He gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Not that we just kind of believe there's going to be eternal life, and that we have confidence. We truly believe. So if somebody asks you, what you believe is going to happen to you when you die? And I say, I, I'm going to go to heaven. I know I'm going to. They think we're arrogant. We're not arrogant. We just believe what we're told. And then he finishes this way. This is a trustworthy saying. That means you can believe it. You can take it to the bank. I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. Now, here's the order. Doing good has nothing to do with our getting reconnected with God after we break that relationship. But after God's, we've received God's mercy and grace, the natural result of that, the natural outflow of that is we're going to do good. We have to do good. We're compelled to do good, just like Jesus was. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. So let me summarize it in a way maybe it would be easy to remember. <laughs> what fills spills. I mean, we understand that in glass. You've got a glass full of water and you knock it, it's going to spill water. Because that's what's inside. So what's inside of you and I? If you're a Jesus follower, you have the Spirit of God that's empowered you. You've experienced in an amazing way God's mercy and grace. So what's the spell out of us? God's mercy and grace. So it's not complicated. Now I understand it's a lot harder to do than to say. But Jesus came to serve those, especially who are broken, with mercy and grace. So you and I should be moved 
to serve with mercy and grace. Also, I want to include the word compassion. So we need to be moved. Compassion must become action. It's not enough just to feel bad for people that are hurting. But we must be moved to action. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of, after the Beatitudes, he gives different illustrations to, to reinforce his points. And so in chapter 6, he gives this illustration about good deeds. He says, watch out, okay? What am I supposed to be watching out for? Don't do your good deeds publicly. Oh, okay. Why? Well, why would you do them publicly? To be admired by others. For you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Okay, so I'm going to do these good deeds, but I want to make sure people understand how good person I am. He says, okay, you, God's not going to reward you for that. And he explains, you will get man's reward, possibly. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, next verse says. This is kind of hilarious. <laughs> Blowing trumpets in the synagogue and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. So it's kind of like you blow this horn or the trumpet or whistle to get everybody's attention and say, hey, look what I'm doing. I'm really helping this broken person, this hurting person. I tell you the truth, Jesus is talking, he says, they have received all the reward they're ever going to get. God's not going to bless them for this. But let me ask you a question. What would you and I do if no one knew that we were doing it? No one knew. Did it a complete secret. What would you and I do if no one knew? And he goes on, we'll finish with this part. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Basically, do it in secret. Give your gift in private, if possible. And your Father, who sees everything, God sees everything, He'll reward you. And I'll guarantee you that reward is going to be a whole lot better than any reward man can get to. So I've got a little formula here. I see the need. I feel the need deep inside. I feel compassion. It moves me to do, to help, to do good deeds. I summarize it this way. Conviction must move us to compassion. There's a verse in James. I didn't put it on the outline. That true religion consists of helping orphans and widows. That's true religion. And we're sitting in here worshiping, or you're sitting at home worshiping. That's part of religion. But James describes it, and James is a lot about on this, the doing side. He explains that. Uh, that sounds like foster care to me. Uh, we used to do, my wife and I, uh, with Ellen, back in the late 90s, she told me, <laughs> foster care with children. And since then, we've been doing adult foster care. People on the other end of the spectrum that are elderly, can't take care of themselves, have no one, sometimes, often have no one. We have holidays and no one comes to visit these folks. So, uh, that's true religion. So, whatever you're convicted about, it must move you to com compassion. Now, Ellen, I don't believe all, everybody should be a foster parent. 
But I believe more people need to be foster parents. As long as there are kids that need foster parents, more people need to be foster parents. We have a word, empathy. We should have empathy, but it's really, you, unless you have been through the foster care system or been a foster care parent, maybe can you truly have empathy. But I think, I truly believe that God through the Spirit, His Spirit can bring about that form or that type of empathy in us even if we've not literally experienced it. And lastly, we need to be moved and motives matter. Motives matter. So, okay, I've seen, I've been moved, I've done it. And, and he said, but maybe you're doing it for the wrong reason. Maybe you want people to say, hey, how great you are. Motives matter. So mercy is ultimately selfless service. So we serve others expecting nothing in return, expecting no one to find out, no one to know. I mean, if you're a foster parent, people know, obviously. There's a lot of trauma in, our, in, in these homes. Uh, Alex mentioned it in his testimony. We're going to get back to his testimony as we finish up this morning. Uh, but I came across this statement, and I, I really like it. And I have to ask Ellen if she agrees with me. Mercy triumphs over trauma. There is healing. Uh, these folks can, and we're going to see it in Alex's story, they can become whole, productive adults through the mercy and kindness and love of folks. So mercy can triumph over trauma. So let's go back to and, and have Alex tell us some more of his story. Alex, I can't imagine what that must have felt like, losing your grandmother, your mother not coming around anymore, and you feeling completely alone in the foster care system. So tell us, what happened next? What was the turning point that followed after that season? When my mom uh, stopped visiting me after my grandma died, one of the group home staff members gave me uh, a gold Good News Bible. Uh, this is really the only possession that I have uh, from being a kid. I started to read about how Jesus was the father to the fatherless, how he put the broken in family, how he grafted us in. And you know, when you have staff members and caseworkers and foster parents and now family members that come in and you're out of your life like a revolving door and somebody says, no, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm always going to be with you that really struck a chord in me that really made me feel like I was chosen I was cared for and that that I was somebody that God did have a plan for and that God did care I always had that in the back of my mind but it wasn't until I walked into that church and felt the vibrancy of people being excited about Jesus and seeing peers my own age worship Jesus that it really was a personal thing you know so skip ahead to the present. You've got three kids, you're married, so you've got a family of your own. You're in full-time vocational ministry. What made you decide to advocate for your brothers and sisters in the foster care system? To me, I advocate because I want people to know that, you know, we aren't a bunch of stats and statistics, you know, that we're not all crazy, but we do have trauma that we need to work through and we need safe people to help us work through that trauma. But simultaneously, my identity is not who I was as a foster child, but who I am in Christ. And lastly, just to emulate our foster child named Jesus. The church isn't for the healthy. The church is for the sick. 
And so if there are children who need help, who need to be shown how to be healthy, what more than the many moms and many dads of the church? But just know that all love takes risk, be it your own child, be it a child that you meet and you disciple in your children's ministry or your youth group every week, or be it a kid that you choose to be a big brother or big sister through. See, to me, Zach, in my mind, this is the way that God marked out. He knew that what the devil meant for bad, he turned into good, that I couldn't see my life any other way. And that if I did not endure what I endured, that I don't think I would be able to be the man that I am today. But I am the man that I am today because of a great God that we serve and because of great mothers and fathers who came alongside me for shorts amount of time or for longs around the time along my journey, man. Okay, very powerful testimony. Uh, someone has been through the foster care system and through God's help and the help of many other folks. Uh, he's healing uh, trauma, dealing with trauma. So I always like to leave you all with something to think about. Hopefully you've had lots of thought to think about already. But let me word it this way. What breaks your heart? Or maybe it's better, who breaks your heart? Hopefully somebody, something does. Something in our culture, something in our society, something in our schools. Uh, what is it that breaks your heart? What is it that you feel deep down in here that, that you just can't do nothing? Um, enough is enough. I've got to help. I've got to try. I've got to do what I can. Parallel question, maybe a better question even, is, if you're a Jesus follower anyway, what breaks God's heart? Or who breaks God's heart? I believe, and I'm sure Ellen would agree, children from damaged homes or children without healthy homes breaks God's heart. Adults getting in their last years of their life that we take care of, that have no one, and often are losing their faculties. I believe that breaks God's heart. Lots of things break God's heart. What is it that breaks your heart? Are you moved with compassion enough to show mercy, to do good? Let me pray with you. Uh, thank you, God. I thank you for the fact that there are people that care about children from broken homes and broken families and foster adults. And in our society, there is structure to provide help, but it takes people. And God, for those of us who are Jesus followers, our hearts should be broken. Not all about the same thing. I don't think foster care necessarily has to, has to break everybody's heart. But something does. Something should. So are we moved? Are we following our Jesus? Are we touching the untouchables? Are we seeing the invisible people, the people that fall through the cracks? And God, I thank you for Alex's testimony that even though through the trauma, 
you can redeem a life, uh, you can bring a person to where they can be a productive part of a society. But it all starts with our relationship with you, God. And so if someone's watching or someone's here that has never accepted that gift, received your mercy, received your grace, we pray today would be the day. They'd understand that they're separated from you. Uh, they're, they're dead in their sins. Uh, they have nothing to look forward to, uh, especially after death. So God, help them to, to believe. We know that you're calling them, you're drawing them. Uh, they wouldn't be watching otherwise or wouldn't be here. So we pray, they would just say yes. That's all it takes. Yes, God, I believe. I ask you to forgive me. I believe your son Jesus died and rose from the dead to forgive me for my sins. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.